Hello, everybody, and welcome to the June 30th, 2020 edition of Peaceful Globalist Review. I am your host, the Peaceful Globalist Ephraim Josine. And the official Twitter account for the Democratic Party tweeted this yesterday. They have since deleted it, but it was saved. Trump has disrespected Native communities time and time again. He's attempted to limit their voting rights and blocked critical pandemic relief. Now he's holding a rally glorifying right supremacy at Mount Rushmore, a region once sacred to tribal communities. Now, a lot of people were mad at this tweet, hence why it was deleted. However, I promise you, almost none of them could tell you the first thing about Mount Rushmore. For instance, what state it's in? South Dakota. The four presidents on it. Those are George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt. Or for that matter, Theodore Roosevelt was only put on there because he was friends with Hudson Borglum, the guy who sculpted Mount Rushmore in the first place. And by the way, the fact that it wasn't even originally meant to be a monument of presidents, it was actually meant to be a group of Wild West heroes. Seriously. But this is our sacred monument that's only existed in its current form for 80 years. Not really that long that I think about it. However, let's talk about the start of that tweet. Trump has disrespected Native communities time and again. This is the part that everyone seems to be actually ignoring. Now, why are they saying this? Now, we could make some kind of argument about if the land we live on was stolen from Native Americans or something along those lines. And people have had that argument for centuries, really ever since the U.S. was founded. And, you know, I don't feel that argument is really worth having at the current moment. It's not, if only because it's way too complicated for me to really properly get into both sides of the debate in this episode. However, Mount Rushmore is a very interesting case. The land it was built on was actually promised by the U.S. government in 1868 to always belong to the Sunni nation, a tribe of Native Americans. Six years later, however, General Custer told them gold was on the land, so they took it right back. This land grab was actually declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 1980, and to this day, there is a um, treasury bond worth over $1 billion, $1 billion, seriously, for the Sunni nation that they have never claimed because they don't want the money. They want their land back. Now, I am just stating facts. Those facts have no editorialization to them. They are all things that objectively happened. Okay? I'm not saying we should blow up Mount Rushmore. I remember I read an article about that from Vox in 2017, arguing a case that I have made myself a few times, that it's kind of weird to sculpt the heads of four men without any context of who they were on the side of a mountain. Even men that many Americans, including myself, do consider to be great, because that doesn't actually cause people to remember the history of them. It just creates worship, more or less. It creates blind worship. How many of the people mad at the tweet I just read you could actually tell me a single thing Theodore Roosevelt did in his eight years as president? Or, for that matter, any aspect of his life story? Probably not many. And that's not an insult to the average American. I'm just making the point that this doesn't cause people to remember history. The fact is, people who want to learn history are going to learn that no matter how hard you make it.
<laughs> and I'm not saying we should make the process hard. Far from it, you should have open information to all parts of history. But removing statues or not having carvings of presidents in a side of a mountain in South Dakota, a state that most people never visit, by the way, except for Mount Rushmore. It's like, seriously, can you tell me one more thing about South Dakota besides it's where Mount Rushmore is? A good chunk of Americans probably couldn't even tell you that. Uh... <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm, I take issue with a lot of argumentation right now, if you can't tell. But anyway, that's not going to actually erase history. History is not going to be erased by statues being taken down or by historical figures not having their faces staring at you when you're in South Dakota. History is removed when facts about history are removed, not when faces are removed. As such, in many ways, we have already seen the erasing of history as facts have become harder and harder to come across. At least that's what I would say if we didn't live in an era of the internet and it being really easy to find biographies on people. Seriously, you can order them on Amazon at this point. Look up a single name that has had a statue torn down in the past two months. You can find, like, I promise you, at least ten biographies on that. And this is kind of one of the things that actually does bother me. I wrote about it in an article for Medium I published today. But one of the things that bothers me about the erasing history argument, and I've been saying it this entire time, and I'm going to keep saying it until people stop using it, is that in truth, the erasing of history is a much more complicated process than just taking down a statue. In fact, with how bad we consider the erasing of history to be, that's probably not even going to be the first or the last part of the list. It's probably going to be somewhere in the middle, okay? Which is kind of where we are now. Here's a serious question. I pointed this out when I played uh, the Tucker Carlson segment a few days ago of him saying that we should uh, be <laughs> like lining up Antifa members and basically and like flogging them. Uh, <laughs> Because they dare take down the statue of Albert Pike! Hashtag Albert Pike did nothing wrong. <laughs> How many of the people that watched and agreed with that segment do you guys honestly think even know who Albert Pike was? I point this out at the time. If they did, they might find it weird that a guy who promotes himself as standing up to this conspiracy of... Elite globalism is defending a high-ranking member of the Freemasons. <laughs> Am I the only one who thought that was kind of weird? And for the record, we know that history isn't going to be erased if we remove this or that statue, because many of these statues were not put up during the person's lifetime. The vast majority of statues to former Confederates, for example, were put up during the Civil Rights Movement. A century after, ignore the message that they were intended to promote, a century after the Confederacy. Nobody in the 1950s said, hey, you remember this Jefferson Davis guy? No, because there isn't a statue of him. Because that would have been nonsensical. Same thing with John C. Calhoun, same thing with Albert Pike, same thing with every single Confederate. People remembered them before there were statues of them. 
because the majority of these statues were not even made during their lifetimes. Robert E. Lee even opposed making statues of him and the Confederates. Seriously. And as for Mount Rushmore, we also this the case because Mount Rushmore was only starting to be sculpted in 1920. At least that's when the first idea of it came about. Now, before then, there was no Mount Rushmore, and people still remembered. Well, obviously, they would have remembered Theodore Roosevelt. He had just finished off his presidency 12 years ago at that point. But they still remembered Abraham Lincoln. They still remembered Thomas Jefferson. They still remembered George Washington. Because the fact is, whether or not there's a statue of something is not the measure regarding where history begins and ends, or what people remember. People don't record history through statues. They record history primarily, at least they used to primarily record history, through books. And then later they started making movies. And then later they started creating web pages to record history. Now, if this was in a pre-film or even a pre-internet era, then maybe I would have some sympathy for the erasing history argument. But first off, think about all the people who don't have statues that you remember anyway. Think of all the famous political figures that have never had a statue of them that you do, in fact, remember. Seriously. Have you ever seen a statue? Just think about a historical figure you really like that you've never seen a statue of probably named three times that amount if you are historically minded or if you're politically active then the average then you can name statues that have been taken down in the past two months i'm being dead serious with that comment um but for that matter if this was a pre-internet era or even or then maybe i could have sympathy for that argument because the point of these statues should ideally be to get people interested in it However, at this point in time, if somebody wants to learn about history, the tools are so available to them, and I mean so available to them, they just need to type in their name into a Google search bar, or Bing, or DuckDuckGo, or Yahoo, or whatever you want to use, and immediately they can find the entire life stories. And I mean their entire life stories. History is not going to be erased because we simply live in an era where archiving is too big to properly erase it. I'm sorry, but it's true. At this point, it is impossible. I'm not going to say it's impossible. That's a stretch. It's not impossible to erase history. However, if theoretically we were actually to start erasing history, let's just leave it at it would be a really big uphill battle. Anyway, I have been defending the Supreme Court a lot recently on this show. Now, this is not because I like them or think they're great. This is just because there are a lot of unfair attacks on them. The Supreme Court seems to have noticed this and are now basically asking me to attack them. As such, today, by a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court ruled that Montana must fund private religious schools if they also give school vouchers to private secular schools. This, of course, is utterly nonsensical. First off, we have had in this country for a very long time a very distinct view on secular institutions getting funding and religious institutions getting funding. 
This has just been long established. And, you know, religious liberty was originally started in this country to keep the government out of the church, okay? That's why we don't force churches to pay taxes, for instance. Now, it's about making sure the government gives as much money to the church as humanly possible, because otherwise it might fall, because people might disagree with its teachings, I guess. And therefore, actually, we just got to keep funding it. You know, this reminds me of a similar case. Let's just review, real quick, the hypocrisy of the right wing on this topic. So, a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court deciding that anti-discrimination laws meant that a business cannot fire an employee specifically for being gay if it does not affect his, his performance as an employee. That's the death of religious liberty, as Josh Hammer called it. Seriously, that's what he called it. That's the end to the conservative legal movement, as Senator Josh Hawley said. However, them forcing members of one religion to fund a different religion, or forcing atheists to fund a religion, or forcing, I don't know, anything else under the sun to fund a religious institution, that is perfectly fine. That is normal. For that matter, the phrase I just used... Uh, that was intentionally crafted after a different controversy, the Hobby Lobby controversy, where Hobby Lobby basically said that because they were a Christian business, uh, I, I don't know what poll they conducted among their shareholders and employees to determine that, but okay, the country is majority Christian, so I'll believe it. Because they're a Christian business, they don't have to pay for birth control. And that was a huge joke. Oh, sexual liberation used to be about getting government out of the bedroom. Now it's about forcing us to fund birth control. Well, okay, that is perfectly, that is a fair criticism. Seriously, that is, in my opinion, a fair criticism. I do not believe that private religious, that private religious institutions should be forced to fund practices they disagree with, even if that is a practice I believe is morally mundane, like birth control. And I say that as somebody who is and has always been an atheist. Okay? So I just want to make that clear. Of course, topics like whether the state should give money to private institutions is not even being debated right now, because we've just come to accept that that's normal. Instead, it's that they're not giving money to enough private institutions. Because, of course... But let's actually think about the ruling of this case. Now, the average religious conservative in America doesn't care about atheists like myself, or basically anyone who isn't a Christian. Okay, so I won't ask them why, for instance, a Muslim, who, by the way, Islam does have a long history of anti-Semitism, as does Christianity for that matter, why an anti-Semitic Muslim should be forced to fund a Jewish private school, at which there are several of in the United States. Might I add. Or, for that matter, why a horribly anti-Semitic Christian, and again, Christians were anti-Semitic through a lot of history, should be forced to fund a Jewish private school. That is, in my opinion, a very important question, but we're going to ignore that. We're only going to talk about Christians, okay? Because that's the only kind, that's the only group of people religious conservatives actually care about. This has been the case for decades. And note, I'm specifically talking about ones that are, in by nature, theocrats, just to make that clear. 
Um, so here's my question. Say I am a fundamentalist Protestant, okay, with horrible anti-Catholic beliefs, as many Protestants did have and still do have. There are several Protestants who to this day, for instance, believe, this a, believe the Catholic Church is a satanic institution. Why should they then be forced to fund private Catholic schools? Especially if, in their mind, that's no different than literally giving money to a Satanist institution. For that matter, what about the other end? There were several Catholics back during the Protestant Reformation that thought that Martin Luther was a heretic and should be burned at the stake. Now, if I'm a Catholic who believes that, why should I be forced to give money to a private Lutheran school? Why should I be forced to give money to a private institution in the first place, might I add? Shouldn't they be able to fend for themselves in the free market? No, no, they need government money. They need government money, because of course they do, because that's how this whole thing works now. The modern, the point of modern business in the United States is not to provide a service to help your customers. It's to see how much money you can squeeze out of the federal government as humanly possible. And when the federal government, or in this case the state government, that being the state of Montana, puts a small roadblock, in the way. Because mind you, there are tons of parents, there are tons of middle-class religious parents that would be perfectly happy to pay the tuition themselves to have their children be sent to a private religious school. However, when the state of Montana puts a small roadblock, that being it can't be taxpayer-funded institutions, or they can't be taxpayer, yeah, they can't be taxpayer-funded institutions, then, oh my god, they're discriminating against us. This really seems like the most minor form of discrimination if you actually look at history, especially history of religious persecution. But, okay. I mean, and I hate to pull this argument, by the way. How many of the people do you think celebrating this have said one word about the fact there are Christians regularly slaughtered, especially on religious holidays like Easter and Christmas, in the Middle East, specifically for their religion. Or, heck, in a good amount of the Eastern Hemisphere as a whole. How many of them do you think have even said a single word about that? Serious question. How many of them do you think have said a single word about the fact in the largest country on Earth, that being China, with over one billion people, it is illegal to practice any religion? Period. End of discussion. I don't think very many. I really don't. I don't. And yet the modern religious American is fighting for the right to get taxpayer funding to their schools. Am I the only one who sees this as an issue, like, at all? How many of them do you think are even aware of these facts? And of course, by the way, this is seen as just acceptable in America. Now, if this happened with an LGBT organization, the entire right, and even a good portion of the left and the center, would be losing their minds over it. And in my opinion, rightfully so. People should not be forced to fund political institutions they disagree with. However, when it happens to a Christian private school, well, that's just religious freedom. But what about my freedom to not pay for them? What about my freedom as an atheist or to simply say, I don't want my money going to a religious organization. Why don't I have that freedom? 
I mean, we can argue about freedom of religion versus freedom from religion and all of that, but the fact is the basic fundamental pillar of liberty is the right to not give money to organizations you don't want to get money. Okay? <laughs> Boycotts are the pillar of freedom in the private sphere. And the government has consistently, in my opinion, overstepped its bounds on that, and violated that right a number of times. This is, of course, the latest example. Anyway, you might remember on the 12th of this month, Rashad Brooks was shot. Okay? Now, I broke it down on this show on the 15th. And I also broke it down on Medium shortly beforehand in an article called Rashad Brooks Did Not Deserve Death, which has since become one of my most popular articles on all of Medium. My opinion was, and still is, that Rashad Brooks was a criminal and was, overall, a really bad dude, but he did not deserve death. He did not deserve to have his life ended. None of the crimes he committed were actually worthy of the death penalty in the state of Georgia. And even then, I do not believe a cop should act as a judge, jury, and executioner. If you look at the situation with Rashad Brooks, the guy was running away from the police, just resisting arrest with a stolen taser, which again is a crime, I'm not denying that, he was not innocent of every single thing. However, that again already has a set penalty to be decided by a judge and by a jury, not by a police officer. So I do feel the police officer did overstep his bounds, and I've said so. Since then, more information about Rashad Brooks has come out attempting to prove people like me wrong, including that he was a deadbeat dad, which is not illegal, which is not worthy of the death penalty in the state of Georgia. Or that he beat his wife, which is not worthy of the death penalty in the state of Georgia. Noticing a pattern here? You guys really noticing a pattern? It seems like we all realize on some level that none of the crimes Rashad Brooks did were worthy of the punishment he got. And we can acknowledge that even if we acknowledge that he was bad. But that said, I don't agree with giving cop the death penalty, which is what there have been discussions about since then. However, and this is the big however, I do still think that it is not okay for police to kill people unless they know the crime they were committing is worthy of the death penalty. I think that's perfectly fair. Okay, that is perfectly fair in my opinion. Now, why am I talking about Rashad Brooks again? As I mentioned, I talked about his show on the fifth or talked about this on the show from the fifteenth which you can go back and listen to if you want to hear my full opinion on it. Because the longer we've been removed from the event, and reminder, it's only been slightly over two weeks since the event actually happened, happened 18 days ago. Okay, so about two and a half weeks. The more that has come up that's absolute nonsense that contradicts everything we originally knew. Enter Tucker Carlson. Who is defending qualified immunity on his show last night, which, okay, he has every right to do. Again, I don't want to censor him or anything, to be clear. As such, he was also debating a senator who had introduced a bill to strip qualified immunity. That senator being Republican Senator Burren from Indiana. And Tucker Carlson mentions the death of Rashad Brooks. And here is what he has to say. And nobody's called him out on this, might I add. Nobody has called him out on this. 
do you believe that the officer now facing the death penalty deserves to face the death penalty? And if you don't, tell us what he should have done. I think that that's going to be determined by the court. And when it comes you to that civil... You cited it. So what do you, wait, hold on. You cited it. What do you think of it? You're the one who called it egregious, so why don't you tell us what I Officer Ross should have done when this man fired a taser at him? What do you For the sake of argument, we'll ignore the fact that you can buy tasers at Walmart, that there are apps that will turn your cell phone into a taser. And yes, I know under Georgia law, a taser is considered a deadly weapon. That's really stupid on George's part as well. So, you know what? Rolf is not to blame for that specifically. I want to make that clear. Rolf is not to blame for George's law being stupid. However, Mr. Carlson seems to have gotten his order of events confused. If Rolf had shot Brooks, specifically at or just after Brooks had fired his taser at him, that would have been one thing. And we could discuss that. And maybe Rolf's actions would have been more justified. That's not what happened, though. Instead, um, Brooks fired his taser, or fired a taser he stole from Rolf, at Rolf, okay? Then, Rolf got, or Brooks, sorry, Brooks got up, ran in the opposite direction from Rolf, and got shot. So, apparently, the answer is when... Rolf, or when Brooks fires his taser at Rolf, Rolf's response was to do nothing for several seconds until, again, Rolf was so far away, or Brooks was so far away from Rolf that Brooks couldn't have fired a taser at him. Seriously. And by the way, again, the argument that, oh, what were they supposed to do? It's a taser. Taser. Georgia allows open carry of firearms. Okay? Can we all agree that maybe Georgia is not really the best state to talk on this? Just in general? But that's besides the point. That is besides the point. The reason I singled out this clip, by the way, is because it's just so thrown under the rug. Like, Carlson just wants his viewers to believe, as they might believe they already know, that it was immediately after Brooks fired a taser at Rolf that Brooks was shot. And again, if that were the case, my opinion would be very different. With that said, however, that's not the case. The police officer clearly had time to think about his actions, or at least enough time to realize that the said person he was shooting did not pose at that exact moment a threat to him. I think that is perfectly fair. So what does Carlson do? He rewrites the story. And why does he rewrite the story? Because that's the only way you can make the actions of Officer Rolf sound justified. Seriously. I should also note, you know those captions uh, Cable News has the stories? Uh, for the clip I just showed, or at least shortly after the clip I just showed, uh, Fox's little caption said, Brian called shooting of man that stole Atlanta officer's taser egregious. Again, the shooting wasn't an issue just because of the fact that Brooks stole Rolf's taser. That's not the issue. The issue is what was going on just beforehand, most notably Brooks running in the opposite direction, which again, 
I have to keep saying it, because if I don't, I know someone's going to strawman me, is resisting arrest and is a crime in the state of Georgia, want to make that clear, but is, again, not worthy of death. Resisting arrest is not a death-worthy crime. Can we all agree on that? Okay, I think I think we should all be able to agree on that. Now, I don't know what was going through Rolf's head at the time. I'm not a mind reader. I'm not a therapist. With that said, can we all agree shooting someone in the back is generally considered unacceptable? I thought we agreed that during the Ferguson case. Now, mind you, in the case of Ferguson, it turned out to not be true. But still, we all agreed that if the situations presented to us by untrustworthy sources were accurate, that would have been wrong. Okay, we all understand that. We all understood that. That's why they presented the distorted narrative. Now, this is a case where, again, Rashad Brooks, like Michael Brown, was no angel trademark. However, in this case, we know what happened. We've seen what happened. We have the video of what happened. Okay? We had that on day one. And what we have found is this is actually much closer to the narrative we were told about Michael Brown than the actual Michael Brown story. Most notably, this is a guy who is hashtag no angel, trademark, but at the same time did not deserve the punishment he was given. Might I remind you guys, he was only pulled out of his car in the first place for the crime of, you ready for this? Loitering. Seriously. He fell asleep while drunk in a Wendy's parking lot. And the video showed, by the way, he was nowhere near intoxicated enough to really qualify. And you know what? I'm not an expert on alcohol, so I'm not going to say. But he didn't look all that drunk is my point. He did not look all that drunk. Okay? Okay. Uh, <laughs> now, again, I want to make this clear, and I have to keep saying this, because otherwise, you, some people will strawman me. No, Rashad Brooks was not literally sent down from heaven. No, he did not put his hands up and say, don't hurt me, bro, or anything else of the sort. Okay? The only question I am asking is, did this man deserve to get shot? And when we live in an era where you have to directly lie about the order of events to make it sound like that, then I would say they've kind of admitted defeat. That's why I showed this clip, by the way, just to show that the anti-Rashad Brooks people have more or less conceded by having to lie by omission. Anyway, as someone who, one of my first political positions was opposition to George W. Bush's war in Iraq, one of the things that continuously bothers me is people who pretend to be anti-war heroes, but simply weren't. Now, this is why I actually do have respect for Joe Biden. He never pretended to be an anti-war hero. He acknowledged that the Iraq war was a failure, and if you look at his comments, he was much more wishy-washy and much more in favor of diplomacy than George W. Bush or Dick Cheney were. With that said, Donald Trump has not done that. As such, today, just today, his press secretary um, said the following.
This is the full clip as uploaded by The Hill. The ultimate way to protect American troops is to not get into needless foreign wars. This president is on record for decades and decades and decades opposing um, opposing foreign wars. And uh, Iraq is a great example. A 20, nearly two-decade war. You have this president who, when Washington was unanimous in saying we're going into Iraq, this president said no. That's not the right decision. He's wound down our troop presence in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq, and he's ultimately protected American troops troops and kept this country safe. And this president, president has a very strong foreign policy record to be incredibly proud of. Thank you. Yeah, this talking point has bothered me uh, since I also have always opposed uh, the war in Iraq. And look at what Donald Trump's record is. Now, you probably saw the short clip from the Howard Stern show from 2002 of him saying he guesses he supports it. He guesses he supports it, guys. However, that's not the only one. Here is a clip from January 2003, when Donald Trump was on Neil Cavuto. Neil Cavuto, for those who don't know, is the same man who screamed that he goddamn bets he's biased. Uh, <laughs> in regards to his consistent pro-Iraq war coverage. Here's what he had to say. People are much more focused now on the economy. They're getting a little bit tired of... Uh... You know, hearing we're going in, we're not going in. We're, you know, whatever happened to the days of Douglas MacArthur? I mean, he'd go and attack. He wouldn't talk. I mean, we have to, you know, it's it's sort of like either do it or don't do it. You're so saying the leash on this is getting kind of short here, that the president is... Whatever happened to the days of Douglas MacArthur? Uh, for those who don't know, Douglas MacArthur was a General Harry Truman fired for trying to get us into a war with China during the Korean War. Yay. For that matter, the president also picked a running mate, Mike Pence. Uh, Mike Pence, on the floor of Congress, endorsed the Iraq War. Here is the clip of that. I rise in support of the resolution authorizing the use of force against Iraq. While I am certain that little of what we say here will be long remembered, I'm also confident that this is a time of conscience and judgment for this Congress. We will be subject to the judgment of the American people and of the world. Time will judge us. History will judge us. And each of us will also answer to him who created and sustains this very earth we inhabit. And when that judgment is rendered, what of the verdict, Madam Speaker? I grieve at the very thought of the United States in armed conflict, and I cannot escape the thought of the American families that may be called upon to send their loved ones into harm's way on our behalf. It is a terrible burden, yet one from which we dare not shrink or retreat, for it is not just peace or liberty that hang in the balance, but as our president has said, potentially the lives of millions. That was Vice President Pence endorsing the war in Iraq. That was way back in the day. Way back in the day. And mind you, a lot of Republicans did. In fact, most Republicans did, as did a lot of Democrats. However, however, the main issue I'm talking about is the deception at play here. And this is, of course, not the only neoconservative. By the way, Mike Pence has said that he... Bases his vice presidency, said this on the campaign trail, after Dick Cheney. Not making that up. 
He's also had Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State. Mike Pompeo is a neoconservative who said that Edward Snowden deserved execution. This is the same president who hired John Bolton temporarily as National Security Advisor. John Bolton is the same man who was called to war against basically every country. Of course, he was later kicked out after disagreement with the president. And I could go on and on and on if I truly wanted to, listing every single neoconservative. Can we forget this is the same man who made his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, also a neoconservative? Are we just to forget the fact that he has regularly called into the show of Rush Limbaugh and said and gave Rush Limbaugh a presidential medal of freedom? Rush Limbaugh used to call opponents of the Iraq War, apparently like our president, un-American and communists. Same thing with Sean Handy, who the president regularly appears on the show of. Seriously. Now, with all of that, I just want to say it would be one thing if the president did at first support the war and admitted that, but that he later changed his mind. That was the case for a lot of people. In fact, in as early as 2004, August 2004, Esquire magazine ran a cover story of him opposing the war. Seriously. However, that's not the story his supporters and him like to tell. That's not the story his press secretary is currently telling. And as such, I do feel it is needed for actual anti-war activists to speak up against this. To speak up and say, Donald Trump was not one of us. He will never be one of us. This is the same man who has continued the drone striking policy done by President Barack Obama and increased the amount of drone strikes, might I add. And he's never gotten us out of Afghanistan. That's just nonsensical. Seriously, that is honestly nonsensical. And by the way, the Iraq war went on for two decades? What are you talking about? Iraq was invaded in 2003, January 2003. I think it was January. It was early 2003. I forget the exact date. However, that would mean that at most it could have only been invaded 17 years ago. And we pulled all our troops out of Iraq in 2011. In fact, that was Barack Obama's actions, but he doesn't get any credit for that, apparently. Because, of course. Of course. Why would he? Why would he? Anyway, last story for tonight. Marco Rubio and Elizabeth Warren are working together. Kill me. Uh, Reuters reported today that Senator Marco, this is from the Hill, that Senator Marco Rubio and Elizabeth Warren will introduce a bipartisan bill Tuesday that would establish a study on the effects of the U.S. reliance on foreign companies when it comes to acquiring necessary medicine. Uh, again, personally, I don't really care where my necessary medicine comes from. You know, call me biased in that regard, but I don't really care if my necessary medicine comes from China, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, or Equestria. Actually, I would totally take Equestrian medicine, in all honesty. I mean, it probably wouldn't work on me, but... It would be pretty cool just to see the effects. Let's be real here. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but this whole fear about the U.S. supply chain, when somebody talks about breaking the supply chain, what they really mean is limiting U.S. medicine. That's what it comes down to. 
politicians used to promise us that they'd get us affordable health care. Now they call us greedy for wanting affordable health care or for wanting medicine. Um, sorry, but that medicine was made in the wrong country because it had to be because the U.S. doesn't have all the natural resources on the planet. Oh, sorry, you're just going to have to die now. I mean, we'd love to give you medicine, but the president said, and Elizabeth Warren said, and Marco Rubio said, that the medicine comes from... And by the way, you know they're not going to be affected by this. If there's a shortage of medicine, prices will rise. It's just an established fact about economics, okay? You really think Marco Rubio is going to be hurt by that? You really think Elizabeth Warren is going to be hurt by that? No, they're rich. They're, they're super rich. Okay, they are loaded. And you're really going to sit there and tell me they really care about breaking the supply chain. And they're just for the average American. The average American doesn't care where their medicine comes from. The average American doesn't know where their medicine comes from. They're not a doctor. That's why it's so easy to find scary-sounding chemicals in vaccines. You know that trick, by the way, where they, like, list... Oh my god, there are, uh, there's animal DNA and vaccines. I have a whole article about that on Medium, where Dylan Wheeler, a.k.a. Educating Liberals, the most ironically named account, the perfect example of Killian's Law, when you think about it, um, does that with all sorts of stuff he claims are in vaccines, and to be fair, basically all of them are. However... They play a very specific purpose, are not in nearly as many vaccines as he claims, or for that matter, aren't in there at all, or are possibly helping. You know, there are tons of examples. Would you inject your children with animal DNA? I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if I should. Maybe I should. I don't know. Would you give your child Roundup when it's been proven it causes cancer? That hasn't been proven, by the way. WHO's study on that was utter garbage. Uh, if a doctor says inject Roundup, okay, I'll inject Roundup. And for that matter, you know, this has only ever happened in foreign medicine. Um, I can think of tons of examples where there are much more life-altering examples that we just don't talk about, where people don't know what's in their medicine. I'm sorry, people as, as a whole don't know what's in their medicine, what surgeries they're getting. Well, okay, they probably know what surgeries they're getting. They don't know the exact chemical compounds. And I'm saying this as somebody who takes medication himself. I don't know the ins and outs of what's in my medication. I don't know. I don't know a single person who knows the ins and outs of what's in their medication. Some people will read the labels. Most won't. Most won't. They don't care if their medicine comes from China. They care if it works. That's what it comes down to. And Rubio and Warren value where it's coming from more than if it works. And with that said, is it any surprise Elizabeth Warren believes in universal health care? As long as the medicine doesn't come from the wrong country. I'm Ephraim, and good night. If you enjoy the show, you'll enjoy my new book, The Establishment is Dead. Long live the establishment. Buy it below.